0: But once again, let's return to the Gospel of Luke together this morning, Luke chapter 7. As we continue to make our way through this particular Gospel, you know that out of the four Gospels, the first three are quite similar in many ways. Um, Thus, they are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel, kind of stands apart, and yet each of the Gospels are written from a specific perspective for a specific purpose. They are ordered in a particular way in order to accomplish those purposes. Each one shows Christ from a different viewpoint and emphasizes different things. And so this morning, as we come to Luke's Gospel, we are looking at verses 11 through 17, and it is the account of a resurrection. Let me begin reading with verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went, into, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise! The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. I can think of nothing as painful as the death of a child. Only parents who have suffered that kind of a loss can tell the agony that they experience when they bury a son or daughter. What anguish they endure as they continue to lament everything that they have lost. Everything that might have been. The southern theologian Robert Dabney was away on church business when he learned that his beloved son had come down with a serious illness. The anxious father traveled all night to reach his son's bedside. Here's what happened next as Dabney relates it himself in a letter to his brother. He writes, We used prompt measures and sent early for the doctor who did not think his case was dangerous. But he grew gradually worse until Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away after great sufferings on Monday. A half hour before he died, he sank into a sleep which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we have had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I have learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give my darling up, but that I saw him suffer such pangs and then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I was impotent for his help. When the mighty wings of the angel of death, nestle over your heart's treasures, and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness. To see my dear little one ravaged, crushed, and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help after his gentle voice could no longer be heard, and to feel myself as helpless to give any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. When it comes to that kind of anguish and suffering, we wonder what comfort God has for grieving parents. What hope remains when the last breath has been taken? Luke gives us some answers. He does this by telling us what Jesus did for a mother after the tragic loss of her only son. In this story, we see the compassion of Christ. We see his power over death and the worship and the witness that they then inspire. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Jesus had been in Capernaum. Jesus had been healing the sick. He approached this little town of Nain, some 25 miles to the south, and meets this sad procession coming out of the city. It was a funeral. According to the custom of that time, the dead were buried outside of the city, usually at twilight, on the same day that they died. There was no embalming process. It was very hot, arid climate. Things needed to be done quickly. Some of the people in the procession were musicians who would have been playing a mournful dirge on their flutes. Others would have been professional mourners. Women who wept and wailed as a public expression of communal grief. And then there were all the people from the town who would have Been there to pay their last respects. Together they would go and lay this son in a rocky tomb. As we picture this scene, we're reminded, of course, of the tragedy of the human condition. We ourselves have gone out to bury our dead. Not walking out of the city, perhaps, but driving in a long line of cars behind a hearse. This is our common sorrow, and it is all because of sin. God gave us life, but we chose to sin, and in choosing to sin, we have come under judgment. The wages of sin being death. If there had never been any sin, there would never be any death, any funerals, any tears. But sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's the source of all of our sorrow. As Luther wisely said, when you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin, and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body, and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death, and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible namely, sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. So, as Jesus watches this sad procession, he is witnessing the tragic lost condition of dying humanity. It would have taken only a few minutes for him to size up the situation. It's not something he hadn't seen before. It was nothing new to him. And he could hear the lamentation from a long ways off. He could see what was happening. Near the front of the procession was the dead man himself, wrapped in a burial shroud, in some kind of coffin, we're told later, and lying out on a flat stretcher carried on the shoulders of his friends. Walking in front of his lifeless body would have been the young man's mother. Probably walking alone. Because in those days it was customary for the family to precede the deceased on the way to the place of burial. And in this case, sadly, there was no one else left but the mother. It was just about the saddest funeral that anyone could imagine. The woman was a widow, so she had been down this road before with the loss of her husband, and now she is grieving again for a loss that must have seemed too great to bear. The dead man was her only son, and now she has no one left to protect her or to provide for her. It's this kind of situation that Paul refers to when he writes about the responsibility of the church to care for widows indeed. And he tells us that if if someone is a widow, but she has family to care for her, then that's their responsibility. The family is to care for that woman. But if there is a woman with no family left, then she is a widow indeed. And the church is to come alongside of her and care for her. This woman was a widow indeed. And she knew, of course, that there were people behind her, a large crowd of sympathizers, but in a very real sense, as she's walking down that road in front of her dead son's body, alone, she truly was alone in the world. This was the death of a mother's only son, and when she buried him, she buried a piece of herself. This would have been just another forgotten tragedy if it were not for one great fact. When she went out to bury her son, she she meets Jesus on the way, and that changes everything. Whenever someone meets Jesus, it changes everything. When, she, when Jesus sees her situation, his heart went out to her. Verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Jesus could see the situation right away. It was all portrayed there in the procession. This woman is walking alone before the body of her son. That told Jesus everything he needed to know. Even if he wasn't God and knew everything already. No husband. No children. She was losing what little was left of her family companionship, of her financial support, When Jesus saw her helpless condition, he is drawn to her in love and sympathy. He does not even wait to be asked. He graciously takes the initiative. Can you imagine this? Here's the procession. Here's the woman walking along. And all of a sudden, some guy just comes up to her and says, do not weep. It's a little intrusive under normal circumstances. But Jesus often did things that were just not normal. If they happened to us, it's like, who are you? And why are you intruding on this most solemn of moments? There are some who would rather not come anywhere close to one who is grieving or hurt in other ways. Sometimes we're not sure what to say. We're not sure what to do. We're preoccupied by our own problems. We're embarrassed by the emotions of someone in deep pain. But Jesus doesn't let any of that get in his way. The word Luke uses to describe his response is a word of passionate feeling. An intense word for a gut response of loving sympathy for someone else's pain. He felt compassion for her. In the depths of his own being, he felt Her suffering. This is how Jesus always responds to people who are suffering. It's how he responded at the tomb of Lazarus when he met Mary and Martha. It's how he responded to the people of Jerusalem in their helpless condition. It's how he responded to his own mother while he hung on the cross. And you would think, all right, if anybody has an excuse for not being too concerned about someone else, it's someone who's hanging on the cross, about to die. And yet Jesus looks upon his mother and commits her to the care of the Apostle John. You read through the Gospels, and you can't help but see it. Jesus seems to go out of his way to strike up conversations with the suffering and the grieving. And since Jesus was not caught up in his own concerns, he was fully and selflessly able to enter into the suffering of others. And he cares the same way for us. Luke has included this story in his gospel so that we would know the compassion of Christ in our own sorrow. The same Jesus who reached out to the widow of Nain reaches out to us when we feel helpless in the face of suffering. In the face of all of these things which life throws at us, the God of the universe, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has compassion for his people. He knows our suffering. He remembers our losses. He hears our anguish. And when he does, his heart goes out to us as it went out to this widow. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. This promise is for anyone. Grieving the death of a loved one. Mourning the loss of a friendship. Lamenting days that are lost and gone forever. Jesus cares for every suffering soul. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. And Jesus is the one who comforts. And then he makes good on his promise. By coming to us. In this comfort which he brings. So we go to him with our troubles. Knowing that in his loving heart. There is room enough for every sorrow that we carry. For everything. That drives us to our knees in grief. As we cry out to him. He can take it. This. is what Jesus is doing as he comes to this woman on the road. And as we experience the compassion of Christ for ourselves, we're called to imitate Jesus in this way. We're called to share that compassion with others. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you'll remember, and told them that God comforts us in all our affliction. And he says he does it for a purpose. Now, God does everything for multiple purposes. But the purpose that Paul brings out is this. That he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Not exactly Shakespeare there. But if you take your time, you get what he's saying. God comforts us so we can comfort others. But notice, we're not comforting others with our own comfort. We're comforting them with the comfort that God gives. Having experienced that comfort in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our grief, we can then come alongside someone else and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Because he'll do the same for you. So... The comfort we receive is the comfort we're called to give, and when we give it, we are following the example of our Lord. To be like Christ is to be drawn to people who suffer, to have an instinctive compassion for the one who is buried beneath grief and sorrow. It means giving them the freedom to grieve without presuming to tell them how they ought to feel, It means showing them that the Savior who died did so, so that he might come to them as the risen one, as the mediator, as the one who brings with him everything that they need. Jesus had more to offer the widow of Nain than merely his sympathies, of course. He felt compassion for her. He expressed that. But there was more. He told her not to go on weeping, but if that were all that he had done for her, it would have been a pretty insensitive kind of thing. Can you imagine coming to such a woman? What are you crying about? Stop crying. Jesus could say that because Jesus could do something about the source of her tears. She had just lost her only son. Tears were appropriate after all. It is the overflow of grief. It is how God designed us so that we're not keeping everything in. We sorrow and we grieve and it manifests itself in tears. It's a release valve. People who have something to cry about ought to go ahead and cry But this situation is different. Jesus had good reason to tell this woman to dry her tears because he spoke in the expectation of what he was going to do next. He went beyond caring for her grief to doing something about it, conquering the death that caused her sorrow. As Jesus began to work his miracle, he makes this dramatic gesture. He came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. (laughs) All right, if it's not bad enough, coming to this woman and telling her not to cry, this had to be an amazing shock to everyone who was there. This, it seems, wasn't whispered. Jesus spoke. With a commanding voice, and everyone heard him. Here he is, touching the place of the dead, which for anyone else would have made them ceremonially unclean, according to the Mosaic law. But Jesus is the Lord of life, and therefore he is not corrupted or contaminated by death. On the contrary, Jesus has the divine authority to keep death in its place. A dramatic confrontation is taking place here at the front of that funeral procession. It's a collision between life and death. An unstoppable force meeting a seemingly immovable object. The grieving had come out to bury their dead. But when the funeral met Jesus, death had to stop in its tracks. Everyone else had to follow the procession, but Jesus had the authority to bring it to a halt. When he put out his hand, he was saying to death, this far, no farther. And as the crowd watched and the pallbearers waited, Jesus spoke to the body that lay shrouded in death. He came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. How absurd it must have seemed when Jesus addressed those words to a cold and lifeless corpse. But with his words alone, Luke tells us that this young man sat up. And then to show that his recovery was complete, he began to speak. And what would you give to know what he said? First thing that comes to my mind. Hi, Mom. We're not told, though. Because that's not the point. The point is that this time the grave would not claim its victim because of the power of a word. Jesus stayed the hand of death. I wonder if you noticed the seeming contradiction as Luke describes this scene in verse 15. It's really quite absurd. Luke says that the dead man sat up and began to speak. The dead man sat up. Dead men don't sit up. You probably knew that without me telling you. But dead men don't sit up. What nonsense. But is it? When one understands that Jesus is the res- resurrection and the life, then a dead man sitting up is the furthest thing from nonsense. With Christ's death, you find an un- neither an unstoppable force nor an immovable object. It is simply, as Paul said, death is the last enemy to be overcome. Death in the resurrection of Jesus which this is clearly foreshadowing, death is swallowed up in victory. In Christ, death is overcome. In Christ, we have the death of death. What a demonstration of divine power. Jesus did not raise the dead by prayer, like the prophets Elijah had done and Elisha, but simply by the power of his own command. When Jesus spoke, the dead obeyed, just as we see in John's Gospel, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. To perform this miracle, Jesus had to summon the young man's soul from the place of the dead. He had to reunite his body with his soul, and all of this required supernatural power. Power over the visible and the invisible, over the body and the soul, over life and death. Here we see proof, wrote J.C. Ryle, that the Prince of Peace is stronger than the King of Terrors, and that though death, the last enemy, is mighty, he is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. Of course, there are always some who want to cast doubt on Jesus and his miracles, especially when it comes to raising the dead. But Luke is a sober Medical observer and he was also a careful historian and all Luke does is stick to the facts there's no you know, ornate description of what's going on no flowery language Luke just lays out the facts and the facts were that this young man was really and truly dead Everyone knew it. Death was very close in the first century. It wasn't hidden away in hospitals and nursing homes. It took place often and right in front of you. People knew what dead looked like. This man was dead. And it was between his death and his burial that Jesus raised him up. There are three miracles like this in the Gospels. This account of the son of the widow of Nain, the account of the daughter of Jairus, and, of course, the raising of Lazarus in Bethany. In each case, there were plenty of witnesses. The event was widely reported. As the Christian apologist Quadratus wrote to the Emperor Hadrian, Only about a century after this. The persons who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were always present also afterwards. And not merely during the time that the Savior walked upon the earth, but after his departure also, they were still there for a considerable time, so that some of them lived even until our times. Now, eventually, all these people died, of course, but I wonder if you ever considered that. What does Lazarus do after he comes back from the dead? I mean, there's got to be some kind of celebrity status that goes along with that. I I, I cannot help but imagine that everyone who knows about it Everyone who hears about it would want to go and talk to the guy. Tell me about it. What did you experience? There are all these books about near death experiences, right? that's, That's what everybody wants to know. These people continue to have a life for some period of time until they all eventually died again. This is the difference, of course, between the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels and his own resurrection from the dead. These people were not raised to glorified bodies. They were raised to the same body they died in, which, you know, it's good. It's good to come back from the dead. It would be much better if your body wasn't going to die again wasn't going to get sick anymore. He was maybe better looking. (laughs) But when Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit gave him a glorious and immortal body. These people did not receive a resurrection body. They merely came back to life in the same old bodies they had before. So what happened to them is more like a uh, resuscitation than a resurrection. Their bodies were still mortal. One day they would die again. Nevertheless, the raising of the widow's son does point us to the death of death in the resurrection of Christ is one of the first hints in the gospel that Jesus would rise from the dead how is dead how is death going to control one who can raise others from the dead and compassion for Our dead and dying race. Jesus had come to die for our sin, and after he died, to rise again. The miracle also shows that Jesus has the power to bring us back to life. He can do something more than simply show sympathy. He can give spiritual life to our dead souls. as we come to trust in him. Now that he himself has risen from the dead, Jesus has the power to grant us eternal life. His resurrection is the promise and the proof that one day we will rise as well. Earlier I quoted from Robert Dabney, who wrote to his brother about the loss of his young son. What I read, however, was not all that Dabney wrote. After giving full expression to his anguish, Dabney went on to write this Our parting is not for long. This spoiled and ruined body will be raised, and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. Our little boy, we hope and trust, is now a ransomed spirit. This is a hope inexpressible and full of glory. As I stand by the little grave and think of the poor ruined clay within that was a few days ago so beautiful, my heart bleeds. But as I ask, where is the soul whose beams gave that clay all its beauty and preciousness? I triumph. Has it not already begun with an infant voice, the praises of my Savior? He is in Christ's heavenly house and under his guardian love. Now I feel, as never before, the blessedness of the redeeming grace and divine blood, which have ransomed my poor babe from all the sin and death he inherited through me. That's the hope of every believer. Through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sin. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. We know for sure that when we die, God will receive our souls unto himself and on the last day he will raise our bodies as well. On that great day, we will be reunited with all the people we love in Christ. There is a clear indication of this in the gospel. Luke tells us that after Jesus raised the young man from the dead, he gave him back to his mother And that word gave is a reminder that life after death is a free gift from God. It is Christ who had the authority to give that son back to his mother. Without this detail, the story would be incomplete. Remember that it was because of his compassion for the mother that Jesus got involved in this situation to begin with. He was sensitive to her suffering. So when Jesus brought the young man back to life, he restores him to his mother's arms. And that gives us a picture of the kind of reunion that we will have in heaven the reunion of every believer in Jesus Christ. He has promised that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. He has promised that at the final resurrection, every child of God will be raised to everlasting glory. He has promised that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. And on that great day, when Jesus brings him to us to himself, he will also give us back to one Another. Who is there that you have lost in Christ? You will see them again. In this story, the Savior's sympathy with the sorrowing and his absolute divine power over the invisible spirit world are gloriously revealed. We see him here as the loving comforter. We see him as the victor over death. We see him as the reuniter of separate separated loved ones. What he did here for this widowed mother and her son he will one day do for all the faithful in a perfect and final form we will receive ultimate perfect comfort he will raise us in incorruptibility he will reunite us with the ones we love who have gone on before in Christ so how do we respond The miracle stories in Luke always invite us to make some kind of response. And this this story is no different. Verse 16 and 17, we read that fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding districts. And in keeping with this example, we are called to respond to the resurrection with worship and witness. So that everyone may know Jesus and his power. When people saw the young man rise, they were filled with fear, we're told. They were awestruck by the miracle that Jesus had performed. This kind of thing didn't happen every day. In fact, it hadn't happened Since the prophet Elisha, a thousand years prior. Now God had visited his people again and they were full of praise. And of course we should be full of praise as well. God had visited us in his son Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sin and he was raised again for our justification. Now every week we gather for worship on the Lord's day, the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead. We come before God in reverence and awe, worshiping the person of his son and glorifying him for the gift of the resurrection. But this gift is far too wonderful to keep to ourselves. We have to share it with others. When the people of Nain saw someone come back to life, they couldn't possibly keep it a secret. They wanted to bear witness to what they had seen, and soon the whole country heard about it. So it is with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or at least it ought to be. When we know that on the third day after he died, Jesus was raised from the dead, we ought to want everyone else to know it too. It's an important part of sharing the gospel. All too often, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we stop with the cross. But without the resurrection, the cross doesn't mean anything, you see. The good news about Jesus includes both his cross and the empty tomb. It's not simply the death of Jesus that saves, but it's also his life. And so we tell people about Jesus bearing witness to his saving grace. And we have a duty to tell them about his victory over death. Scripture says that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's our hope. Not hope as in wishful thinking. Hope as in a certainty that we are looking forward to. To know the hope of the resurrection is to know the joy of salvation. That hope does not wipe away all our tears, not yet at least. But it can give us joy in the midst of our sorrow. Joy because Jesus has risen. And in rising, he has conquered the last enemy. Jesus is risen and will one day say to the dead, arise and they will arise. Arise. He will say to the living, weep no more, and there will be no more weeping. The promise is that because Christ is Lord over death, for those who are his, all will be well. Father, that's your promise to us, and we rejoice in it. Thank you. Father, may we experience joy even in the midst of sorrow until that day when sorrow is no more. May we praise Jesus through our tears until that day when there will be no more weeping. Father, may we be those who extend sympathy and compassion to others in the name of Christ that they too might know the joy Of the living Lord. For it is in his name that we ask it. Amen.